What South Africa is asking them to do is to issue an injunction, essentially, and tell Israel to stop all military action in Gaza. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, January 12th. Today, I'm joined by Julia Yaffe to explain why South Africa is leading the charge at the United Nations to formally accuse Israel of genocide and end their military action in Gaza. And later, M&A guru Bill Cohan swings by to explain why he's convinced that Comcast will try to buy Warner Brothers Discovery. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe for an update in the war in Gaza. Julia, welcome. I want to talk to you about an interview you did this week about South Africa and their petition uh-huh. uh, to the UN's top court, the International Court of Justice, accusing Israel of genocide, basically. Um, they're asking the court to end all Israeli military action in Gaza. The United States has veto power over this. It's unlikely that will come to pass, but it's really sparked a loud debate. Obviously, Israel has condemned South Africa's case, calling it, quote, blood libel, um, and they've pushed other countries to attack South Africa on this as well. Uh, we've talked previously on the podcast about South Africa and the continent mm-hmm. generally. They're, they're sort of support for the Palestinian cause over the years. Can you just give me a little bit of backstory? What is South Africa actually alleging uh, in this petition? You interviewed David Sheffer, who's an attorney and professor 
um, who, you know, focuses on war crimes. He worked with Madeleine Albright back in the day. He's a pioneer in international human rights law. You asked him this question. What is South Africa alleging here? So South Africa is alleging basically the whole thing. They're alleging that Israel is failing to prevent genocide, committing genocide, that Israeli officials are guilty of incitement to commit genocide with some of their statements like burn Gaza down, flatten Gaza, some of these calls for the ethnic cleansing of Gaza. And uh, they're bringing this application, which is what you call a complaint in the world of the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, which is what we know as The Hague. And so given all the things they're alleging, I decided to give a call to a guy I was on a fellowship with this fall. His name is David Sheffer. He worked with Madeleine Albright very closely throughout the whole Bill Clinton administration, uh, both at the UN, at state. He was the uh, ambassador at large for war crimes. He helped set up the international criminal tribunals for the former Yugoslavia, for Rwanda, for Sierra Leone, uh, for the Khmer Rouge. He helped create the International Criminal Court, which is a different court. So he really knows this stuff inside and out. And he told me some really interesting things, uh, the first of which is that basically the ICJ, the Hague, is not going to rule at any point on the merits of this. They're not, at no point are they going to say, yes, Israel's committing genocide, or no, Israel is not committing genocide. As you said, what South Africa is asking them to do is to issue an injunction, essentially, and tell Israel to stop all military action in Gaza. And Mm. it will either do that or not do that. So I found that to be super interesting, that they are not going to touch basically the merit, the kind of the beating heart of this. Why is South Africa the country speaking up about this and filing the petition? I mean, I know the sympathies are there. When I I studied abroad in in Cape Town during the second intifada, I think. Mm. And, you know, it's a campus one. So there were sympathies with the Palestinians, you know, even in the early 2000s. But also there's a history of colonialism, the sort of oppressor-oppressed dynamic that that has been expressed recently. Sympathy for the black and brown underclasses of the world. There were so many Palestinian flags all over the University of Cape Town campus. And I lived with mm-hmm. black South African students. That was the the first generation uh, that had sort of come of age post-apartheid that I was going to school with. And they were very, very oh, wow. rah-rah um, Palestine. Uh, and yeah. so it's interesting to see this come from South Africa because, I mean, that makes sense philosophically, but mm-hmm. why are they the actual country to file this petition versus any other country in the world that might be upset with what Israel is doing. And by the way, we should mention when it comes to the to genocide and, and the accusations, uh, we remember, you know, about 1,200 Israelis were killed. So far, we have over 20,000 Gazans who have been killed uh, with near daily bombing of Gaza by uh, the Israeli military. So that uh, those are the numbers that are they're sparking this conversation. Right. So uh, on the technical point of why South Africa is bringing this uh, application, basically any party who is a member of the UN is party to the Genocide Convention, but also Israel actually signed the Genocide Convention. And mm. I think also why it's 
why it's sparking such strong feelings in Israel is, you know, the word genocide, the genocide convention, the state of Israel came out of the genocide of the Jewish people in Europe, right? It was the genocide of European mm-hmm. Jewry. So there's a kind of territorial kind of feeling about the word genocide, understandably. And it's kind of, it kind of gets at the very core of the, of the kind of raison d'etre of Israel, which is to keep Jews safe from anything like that ever happening again. But in the case of the Genocide Convention, it is that everybody who's a party to it owes to every other party to not commit genocide. So if one of the many, you know, hundreds of countries that is party to the convention feels that somebody else is committing genocide, they can bring it. Anybody can bring it who is party Mm. to it, because it is an obligation you owe to everyone. Um, On the philosophical point about South Africa, I think there's, in general, on the left, there is that dynamic. Also, part of that is because of the Cold War and where kind of Mm. sympathies aligned, you know, the kind of the third world that was aligned with the Soviet Union was very anti-Zionist, very anti-Israel. The Soviet Union really supported the anti-apartheid people, not because they believed in equality for all and uh, anti-racism, but because it was a kind of anti-Western position. And Israel, unfortunately, aligned itself with the apartheid regime more and more closely. And mm-hmm. um, even at one point, there was, you know, uh, I believe... They were helping each other develop nuclear weapons, which South Africa renounced in in the 90s. So, you know, that regime fell. But I think there's, a, you know, the people who fought apartheid in South Africa still see Israel as kind of they were aligned with those guys, even though those guys were often aligned with the Nazis. They were incredibly anti-Semitic. But whether because of the Cold War or because of the Palestinian issue or realpolitik, uh, Jerusalem was quite closely aligned with Pretoria um, during the apartheid days. So that, I think that also weighs uh, very heavily on this. And I always feel like I have to say this when people quote the numbers because it has not, it is not being made clear really anywhere. When you see the, the death tolls coming out of Gaza, they are horrific and mm-hmm. uh, far too high. But those numbers also include Hamas combatants. Mm-hmm. And the Gazan health ministry does not differentiate between Hamas combatants and civilians when it puts out those numbers. So those numbers are a little bit deceiving, if that makes sense. And I think no, that's, no, no, no. That's, that's, also- that's an important thing to point out. Yeah, that, that gets lost in the conversation. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in a story and an event that where people get so worked out up about the tiniest details, I feel sometimes a little bit hesitant to mention that. But I think it is important because it it's one of the things, as David Sheffer pointed out, that the South African complaint does not make clear at all, even though it's a well-known fact that mm. um, the Gazan health ministry and in general, like that, that there is no breakout of the combatant death toll that it's all lumped together and presented as if it is uh, all civilians. And there's no, as David Sheffer pointed out, there's no mention of that in the South African application. It's kind of a curious exercise to think back on the apartheid framework and then fast forward to today, because there were so many 
Jewish anti-apartheid mm-hmm. activists who are trade unionists and, and writers, you know, Nadine Gordimer and Joe Slovo and Helen Suzman and Betty Dutrois. And like they were so some were socialists, some were communists, some were just like sort of like the American civil rights movement, like the Jews were aligned with the black underclass and fighting uh, for freedom. Um, and, you know, it'd just be interesting to talk to some of those people today about the ANC's petition here, um, alleging alleging genocide and basically just condemning Israel across the board. Well, this is also, I think, what I find really fascinating about this turn of events, which is that 100 years ago, Jewish people were reviled for being synonymous with Bolshevism and communism and leftism, mm-hmm. right? Now, the left as- often assumes that Jews are kind of ethno-nationalist fascists, right-wingers, etc. cetera. Uh, so I find that kind of transformation interesting. Obviously, mm-hmm. a lot happened in those 100 years. But yeah, I, again, I think South Africa is a very logical choice. It's also, um, as David pointed out, not an Arab country, not a Muslim country. And so mm-hmm. it makes it appear more kind of more objective and less wrapped up in the tribalism and especially the religious tribalism that is so at play in this in this war and in the and in the mm-hmm. conflict going back decades. I was just thinking that it's like a, a little bit of that um, the false notion that history actually repeats itself when in fact it doesn't. And when we try to call one thing another the same thing as another thing, when we say mm-hmm. that was a Holocaust and this was a Holocaust and that was apartheid and this is apartheid, you can miss what is actually happening in that specific moment. Like the historical analogy and the historical term can be useful until it becomes kind of blinding and you miss the different dynamics of a certain situation. Not to say that the situation isn't horrific, that what's happening in Gaza is not horrific. It is. But to me, just that kind of the the use of that term calls to mind, you know, the people who say that, you know, if people who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, was history doesn't actually ever re- actually repeat itself. It's always something a little new. No, thank you, Julia, for holding it down for nuance and context. That's what we like to do here at Puck. <laughs> Seriously. Um, so anyone, by the way, if you are interested in the salient question, the real question of, of whether Israel is committing genocide in Gaza, please go read Julia's interview with David Sheffer at Puck. It came out this week. Very interesting. Whether you care or not about South Africa, um, it adds some important uh, context to this conversation. Julia, thank you so much. Have a good weekend. You too, Peter. When we come back, Bill Cohan is here to talk about why Comcast might buy Warner Brothers Discovery. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be. netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Bill Cohan. Great to see you, Bill. Hey, Ben. Great to be here with you as always. It was nice to see you in the uh, the office too. You you deigned to visit us here in uh, Chelsea. You came all the way down from the Upper West Side. Took the blade. I descended. <laughs> yeah, I took the PJ. <laughs> the blade to the PJ to the office. That's right. And it was great right. to see you all and have lunch with our new fearless leader, Sarah. That's right. Well, I wanted to have you on the podcast today to talk about the intersection of Wall Street and Hollywood, one of our favorite topics here at Puck, and uh, why you're convinced that the most likely big entertainment merger in the next year or so is going to be Comcast, which owns NBC Universal, acquiring Warner Brothers Discovery. That would be an absolutely massive M&A deal uh, that would presumably maybe allow these guys to compete with Netflix. But Bill, there, there, there's a lot of other sort of M&A chum in the water. So I, I was curious why you don't think WBD is going to go for a smaller move and buy Paramount, which Sherry Redstone has been kind of flogging. <laughs> that Sherry Redstone has been flogging. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. You wrote earlier this week that you think the meeting between David Zaslav and Bob Backish at Paramount was just sort of a, a head fake. Why? What, what's your thinking behind all that? I, I mean, I, I guess I don't really believe that WBD buying Paramount uh, is the top choice for, you know, the Zaz uh, Gunner machine. I mean, look, if, if you know, Brian Roberts, uh, you know, it's sort of interesting because, you know, if, if Brian Roberts at Comcast isn't isn't interested in doing anything with WBD, um, which can't be done you know, officially until after April because of the Morris reverse Morris trust rules. If if he's not interested in that, then you know, okay, maybe um, if Paramount Global is still around, if you know the Ellisons don't buy it, uh, then you know, then maybe Zaz and all uh, would have that as sort of like a consolation prize. But you know, I'm not sure that's a consolation prize worth having. That could be a serious pyrrhic uh, victory because you know it's a 25 billion dollar uh, enterprise, including the 14 billion of debt. So it's you know 11 billion of equity, or, or it was. It seems to be slowly sinking into the West again. Um, you know, you've got two companies uh, with triple B credit ratings, with a lot of debt, uh, and on the so-called triple B cliff. Um, uh, I think you put uh, these two companies uh, together, uh, one with 43 billion of debt, one with, uh, you know, whatever, 14 billion of debt. That's 57 billion of debt. Now we're back to where WBD was even more beyond, you know, two years ago when it started with 55 billion of debt. So you've got 57 billion of debt. You've got WBD not it's, it's uh, heady stuff. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a t- 
ton of debt. I mean, $43 billion is a ton of debt. $14 billion is a ton of debt. Uh, I would say, you know, Zaz, you know, have fun uh, trying to pretend you're interested in Paramount Global. But I think, you know, once Gunnar runs the numbers, uh, it's pretty much a non-starter to say nothing of whether or not, uh, you know, they can own both uh, Warner Brothers Studio and the Paramount Studio. They probably could own both CBS and CNN, uh, but I don't know if they could own both those studios. And then, you know, what's he left with? A streaming business that's losing a lot of money. Uh, Maybe take out a lot of costs to make them both profitable and a bunch of, uh, you know, second-tier cable channels at this point. Uh, So I think it's just one big... I mean, and look, (laughs) this lunch, you know, uh, when I go to lunch, Ben... Uh, it doesn't leak into the you know Wall Street Journal or wherever it leaked or Axios or wh- wherever it was that it leaked. Okay, so somebody must have said something for a purpose to the media to get that out there to make it seem like the Zaz and Backish were talking about a deal. And oh, by the way, Zaz also talking to Sherry about you know his in, you know interest in doing a deal. I would say all, I don't know anything, but I would say all but uh, just a big old head fake uh, to get, hopefully, Brian aroused from his slumber and uh, maybe it meets his quote-unquote high bar that he's set for doing M&A deals. Right, and you don't think that Comcast is going to buy Paramount either, but uh, but Brian oh, Roberts no is going to have a lot of dry powder after getting rid of the remaining third that uh, he owns of Hulu. That's going to be, you know, 10 billion plus dollars that he's just sort of stacked on top of the balance sheet. And and, and you think he's going to go out looking for other kind of deals. And, and tell me about this, because you, you have dealt with Brian Roberts personally um, back when you were an M&A banker on Wall Street. And, and I really liked this observation that you had. You, you wrote a piece about this recently. You noted that Roberts has this sort of carnivorous appetite as a deal maker, that this is a guy who you know, he was kind of he was born on third base. His father is the founder of Comcast, but he's sort of the rare exception to the rule of underwhelming heirs as a guy who actually took a company he inherited and made it way bigger. And, you know, obviously these businesses are driven by economics as much as by ego. But is it your sense that Roberts at the end of the day is just he's not a guy who's done building? I, I think Brian is uh, in his prime. I think he's what, 63. I mean, he's uh I think we're the same age. Uh, totally uh, in his prime, uh, you know, he's best positioned now among you know his more or less wounded peers, with the exception of Netflix, which is you know obviously a very different business. You know, has a even higher market value. But I mean, compared to Disney or WBD or Paramount, I mean, uh, Comcast is in a, in a in a much stronger position to sort of pounce and kind of knows it's in a strong position and is going to be like the partner of choice here. So I I don't think uh, he's going to do Paramount because, you know, what's the point of all that? I mean, he's going to have to divest one of CBS or NBC, and I don't get the point of that uh, at all. So that ain't happening, even though it's smaller. Uh, WBD, yeah, I mean, it creates... You know, headaches, uh, of course, there's that $43 billion of debt. There's probably, you know, Zaz wanting to be the CEO, at least for a little while, um, and Brian kind of probably not wanting him to be the CEO. Uh, I don't think there's a whole lot of 
uh, respect there, I think. Uh, but, you know, that might be the price of the deal because I think, you know, Malone and the news houses who gave up their voting control of, of WBD to, you know, to make to discovery to make the WBD deal happen are probably not, you know, too keen on letting Brian Roberts be the sole controlling uh, shareholder, you know, the big controlling shareholder of the combined NBCU, WBD, and so would extract at least superficially, temporarily, slash uh, as some sort of uh, sinecure, Zaz running the thing for a little while. And again, Zaz is about our age too. So, um, you know, e- you know, even if the deal got announced in May or June and then takes a year plus to get through the regulatory environment, and he's going to be close to 65 anyway at that point and, you know, can be figurehead for a little while and then, uh, you know, as the price of doing the deal and then, uh, you know, ride out into, you know, the sunset or some, you know, some other production deal or whatever it is that he wants wants to do. But I, I think that Zaz probably is mo- motivated by a desire to accomplish at, quote, NBC what he, what he wasn't able to accomplish when he was working at NBC uh, you know, for for Jack Welch and Bob Wright, for whatever reason, they thought of him as like you know the lawyer who did the cable deals. Um, so I think he wants some sort of vindication for that frustration he must have felt back uh, during the NBC GE days. Yeah, it, it's funny and uh, and a little bit perverse to imagine this massive, massive, massive media merger being held up by. Basically, just the egos of these guys. Who's going to run the company? Whether uh, but, whether but, Comcast but is going to get fifty-one percent controlling stake? No, sure. Yeah. I mean, but it's, but you think there's a way for them to to make this work? That there could be sort of a face-saving maneuver where Zaslav runs the combined entity for a certain number of years, and then what? Robert Sky, Mike Kavanaugh comes in and, and sort of takes over from him. Yeah, so, something like that, or you know, somebody else comes in that Kavanaugh uh, reports to Kavanaugh while Kavanaugh's on his way to running all of Comcast at some point. Again, just sort of speculating. I mean, I think you have to ask yourself, what are the drivers uh, of the, you know, the macroeconomic drivers? I think that Brian probably realizes that NBCU uh, is under undersized compared to, you know, Disney, uh, compared to... Netflix compared to even W, you know, BD or, you know, how, how do you compete? And w- what if Apple and Amazon and, and or Google or Microsoft really want to get into the entertainment business in a bigger way? You know, how, how is he going to compete? I think he uh, clearly likes the business. He was taking his victory laps at the Golden Globes for Oppenheimer the other day. So um, I think he likes the business. Um, and I think he probably is smart enough to realize that it's undersized and needs to do something. What can he really do? Well, he's not going to do Paramount. Uh, clearly, WBD is a complicated, you know, right up Brian's alley, very complicated, very large, no real competition for it aside from Comcast. And, you know, if anybody can pull it off, I think Brian Roberts could pull it off and be, you know, another one of those crowning achievements that Brian Roberts, uh, you know, loves to um, show the world he can he can do. I mean, this is a guy who made a hostile bid for Disney, who who, who uh, and, you know, and then lost. Who 
bid up the Murdoch assets against Disney so that Iger would have to overpay, and then who uh, bid against Murdoch for the Sky assets, which he won, and now probably regrets to some degree, you know, because it's not really making any money yet, uh, and he paid $40 billion for it. So uh, this is a guy who likes big deals. He likes to be a player. He He's in his prime. Come on. He's not going to let this moment lapse without uh, him doing something. Yeah, and, the, and you know, to your point you're making before, the, the company's got a ton of debt, but also, um, you know, its market cap is like less than half of what it was uh, two years ago. This is a, a bite-sized entity now for, for a company like Comcast. So, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And um, April is the date we're looking at when um, we might start to see more more movement and public discussion around this. And uh, we'll get to see if you're right, Bill. But um, well, they, they, they can the chat before April, of course, but no, no announcements till after April. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll probably be wrong, Ben, but it's sort of fun to uh, uh, speculate about it and talk to people who Yeah, yeah, agree. this is not investment advice, just, just two guys. No, chatting. it's not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bill, thanks as always for coming on. Great to see you. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you on Monday. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.